Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Well, my friends, for the first time in a long time, I feel like a runner again. I feel like I'm training correctly and gaining fitness. And since the last time we talked, I've brought my running up to over 30 miles a week. Coach started me out doing two midweek runs and easy speed work session on Saturday and a longish run on Sunday with core and bike ride on the other days to build my base. That's what I did for the first three or four weeks, and now I'm starting to get in some real training. Those midweek runs are longish. You know, they're eight miles or so, hour and 15, hour and 20 in zone two. And the beginner speed work sessions that I am going to talk about today aren't really speed work in the sense that I'm used to doing it historically, but more like a preliminary warm-up to get ready for some harder stuff to come. And it's a good workout that I have put my own spin on, and I'll give you my rendition of it in Section 2 today. I got Buddy out on the trails with me a couple weeks ago for one of these runs, for an easy run, and he handled it okay. He's getting old, though. I'm starting to uh, pull back on him because he really is starting to move a little bit more stiffly, a little bit more slowly. The old dog. Best time of year to trail run in New England because it's still cool in the morning and the deer flies aren't out yet. As we transition into July, it gets a lot hotter and it gets a lot buggier. And the mosquitoes are as thick as smoke in June, but they only bother you if you stand still too long. If you move quickly, they can't catch you. I've been using my new Garmin 310XT that I bought. And it's basically a next generation of the Garmin 305 that I had before. And in fact, I'm using the old 305 heart strap. And it seems to work, but I think I need to replace the heart strap because I've got some odd heart rate data. And uh, either that or I'm having, uh, I'm having heart episodes. So the 310 is a, it's a solid device. I haven't delved into all the features yet, but it seems a bit less clunky than the 305 and the interface is less clunky. Uh, it picks up the satellites much faster, especially when I travel, right? When I move a few hundred miles sideways between runs. And it has up to four data screens, display screens for each sport, right? With four data elements on each screen, up to four. So one to four on each screen times four. And I like that because I can, I can figure different screens with different stuff on them and then just page through them when my workouts. And screens are, for the most part, they're readable. It's pretty much the same screen as the uh, the 305 had. The interface is what's called an ant stick, which is a USB stick about the size of a fingernail. And I know I'm going to lose this thing because it's tiny. I'm, I'm thinking maybe I should tether it to like a cricket bat or a paddle or something like they do for the restroom keys at the gas station. And the interface works well enough. As soon as you walk within three meters of your computer, if you have the stick in, it senses a new workout and it uploads it to Garmin Connect and resets the watch. And you're ready for your next workout. You don't have to reset it again. 
The battery life is said to be over 10 hours, but I don't have any plans to work out for over 10 hours anytime soon, so I can't comment on that. I know it's good for at least 2-3 hours. I did wear my old 305 for a 50 miler, and that was just about 10 hours, and I think it, it just about made it 10 hours. I managed to turn off the interface, or it turned itself off this week, and I had to spend some time diagnosing why my workouts wouldn't upload, and somehow the pairing got switched off, which is like three menus deep into the setup, and I can't really see how I accidentally turned it off, so I think it must have updated itself like devices do these days, remote update. It's a good device and does what I needed to do. There's no client software on your computer anymore. It's all run through the cloud on the Garmin Connect website, which, of course, you have to register for, and it's a bit proprietary. And you can view your heart rate, your distance, your time, your pace, all these nice charts and data and stuff, and all your workouts for you data geeks. And then you can export it, too, to other logs and stuff like that. And it's uh, it's much easier to build workouts with this interface. At first, I found the interface mystifying, but let's say you want to build a workout with a 10-minute warm-up in Zone 2, heart rate, 7 by 800 at marathon pace, and a 10-minute cool-down, right, for example. And that sounds pretty straightforward, but I actually had to go out and watch a YouTube video, somebody explain how to do it to figure out how to drag and drop the repeats and stuff into the into the workouts but once you get it then it's then it's easy and then you export the workout to the watch and when you're ready to go you hit the do workout menu and this is no different than the 305 the interface is just easier now and the uh on the watch you hit go ahead you know do the workout and it prompts you through the workout and has different chimes for when you're over target pace or on pace or under pace or this you know, and the same for the heart rate, which is super helpful sometimes and super unhelpful other times. When, you know, when you do an interval work, it is pretty helpful. You don't have to focus on your watch. You can just listen for the chime for when your interval's up. And holy cow, I was just going to mention in passing that I have a new watch and it turned into a, a device review, so to speak. Well, today we speak with our old friend from Japan, Amy Chavez who makes a habit out of running medieval Japanese pilgrimage routes. You remember her book on running the Shikoku pilgrimage. Good read. I quite enjoyed it. Maybe, what, a couple years ago we talked to Amy? I can't remember. And we talk about the iconic marathon monks of Mount Hai. Hae Hae. And how there may be some misconceptions in our mythology. And in section one, I'm going to talk about flow states. And in section two, I'm going to walk you through a beginner speed and strength workout. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Flow states. What are they and how do you get them? I just finished an interesting book called The Rise of Superman by Steve Kotler. I think it's Kotler. It might be Kotler. It examines the science behind what are known as flow states. The book uses extreme athletes as the case studies for how attaining and manipulating the flow state enables these athletes to do things that seem otherwise impossible. And overall, it's a worthwhile read, as most New York Times bestsellers are. So what is flow? Flow is a mental and physical state that humans can access that allows them to do amazing things. It has been known throughout the existence of humans as an elusive sort of superpower that somehow kicks in 
during times of high stress or high achievement or danger, and you have heard of flow. Think through a historical litany of any amazing athletic, artistic, or any field's top performance, and you have found flow. You may have felt flow yourself. I know I have. It is those times when you're in the zone and everything just works. You don't have to think about what you're doing, and it just happens perfectly, and you you transcend the activity. And I'll give you a couple examples. I'll give you three examples from my world. The first, of course, is in running. As a runner, I've had times in races or even in training when I get what we might call the runner's high. I'll be running along, working hard, and I'll get the sensation that I'm outside my body. I'll transcend the effort. And when I have entered flow, it's typically when I'm under some duress, but I have trained well. So my preparedness and my effort bring on the flow state time slows down and I'm outside my body and I'm looking down at my legs and they are racing, but I'm just a rider and there's some other mechanism at work. And it's a wonderful and glorious thing. I'm not sure I'd describe it as feeling like Superman, but it's definitely a positive trip. I might describe it as feeling indestructible or bulletproof, similar to how I've heard people describe a cocaine high, but we'll get to that in a moment. The second example I'll give you is when I'm doing some creative work, like writing, typically under a deadline. And I'll be working with some heightened urgency, and the words or ideas will just start to flow, as if I'm not even involved in the process, as if I'm just the channel through which this is happening. And they just flow. And people report this flow state sometimes as a voice or the voice. And again, it's as if they are not under their own will and they're being guided by some hidden hand or influence. And this state of flow causes people to talk of God and higher powers and universal masterminds and some great pool of knowledge and inspiration that they somehow channel when this flow switch is thrown. The final example is when I'm up in front of an audience giving a presentation and everything just sinks, and the audience and I meld into one common experience, and it becomes sort of a mutual rapture of sorts. That's an example of group flow. And I found this example really interesting for its impact on management science, thinking about it, how, if you can trigger a group flow in an organization, how that can become a creative powerhouse. For example, think of those startup stories where the core team gets lost in a group experience of pizza and coding to produce this amazing product. Or in a simpler example, how an accomplished jazz ensemble creates synchronicity. It's all, it's group flow. Now, if you live long enough, you're bound to experience flow states. I feel sorry for you if you have not. People who are in flow report a feeling of peace, of transcendence and a sense of time dilation. When you get into flow state, time slows down or time stands still. These are what people say. And you may have felt this yourself at some point. And the author uses extreme sports to illustrate flow states. And this makes sense because we're all familiar with the craziness of these extreme sports. We watch these young people and think, how the hell are they doing that? And maybe you've seen these videos on social media of mountain bikers, skateboarders, skiers, surfers, snowboarders, etc. The ones that are hard to watch because they make you feel queasy and send fear rushes through your head. 
like some dude riding down the side of a mountain at 60 miles per hour, jumping off cliffs and throwing tricks, where if he misses his line by an inch, he'll plunge into a gorge or splat like a ripe grape into the rocks. Those dudes are in flow state. There's no way you could do that stuff without the advantage of flow. And up until now, the flow state was talked about and written about and known about, but there wasn't a whole lot of science behind it. Recently, they've been able to use some of the advances like MRI scanning and modern science to figure out what's going on inside your brain when you drop into flow. And I'm going to generalize a bit. I'm going to summarize. But you can say that your brain has two systems. There's the the animal system that acts without thinking. And there's the prefrontal cortex that makes the rational decisions. The problem is that if you're hurtling down a cliff face on a bike, you really don't have time to think through each decision. Conversely, you don't want your animal brain just making decisions based on fear and emotion and response. So you need a way to combine the best of the both of both of these systems, and, that, and that's what flow does. It shuts down large chunks of your prefrontal cortex and allows your lower levels sort of in-ram processes to take over. You don't have to think about what you're doing. You just do the right thing. This is where the, the speed of decision-making comes from, and this is also where that time dilation comes from. When you enter flow state, the part of your brain that handles time comprehension shuts down, and you get those time-stood-still moments. At the same time, when you enter a flow state, your body releases a large hit of chemicals, pleasure chemicals, into your brain. And remember I mentioned a cocaine high? It's the same principle. Your body produces well-being and calming chemicals so that you can deal with the intensity of the flow state. And the high is actually a chemical high produced by this powerful cocktail of chemicals. And of course, this is the same state of mind that the gurus from the 60s were chasing. The doors of perception generation thought that you could find transcendence through mind-altering drugs. You think about Carlos Castaneda and his mushroom trips or Ken Kesey and the, the Magic Bus and all those guys. And they were partly right. They were approximating the flow state. Their crucial misunderstanding was that they weren't opening doors in the mind, but rather shutting down big chunks of their prefrontal cortex. And this is also why there is a bit of a, a letdown or hangover when you come out of a flow state. Like, like the rock star who only really lives when they're on stage and in that state. There's a big letdown when you're not in it. You know, they don't know what to do. And this can lead people to chasing the flow state to the detriment of their well-being. As noted in the book, most extreme sports athletes don't die of old age. And what can we learn from this? How do we get into a flow state? How do we use it? Well, flow states are powerful for getting stuff done and excelling at your chosen art, craft, or sport, and they're open to the common person. Like anything else, flow states respond to practice and training. Unlike drugs, getting into flow states gets easier and better the more you do it and carries over into your normal life or your non-flow life as well. Meditation has been found to be a way to prepare the mind for flow states. And if you think about this, it makes perfect sense. When you meditate, you calm and take control of the mind. You manipulate your consciousness and gain the tools of focus. 
very similar to manipulating the prefrontal cortex. Visualization is another tool to promote flow. You know athletes have done this for ages. They visualize the event and the perfection of that act. And this practice, this visualization, removes the barrier of doubt when you get into the action and allows you to slip into flow. Don't think that this is some kind of magic. You can't just focus your mind, drop into flow, and start playing like Michael Jordan unless you have the underlying skills and the practice of Michael Jordan. The knowledge and existence of flow states doesn't obviate the requirement for tens of thousands of hours of practice to gain proficiency in your sport or your craft. This proficiency of your craft is what builds the ability to make correct and precise decisions without involving your prefrontal cortex. I can slip into flow at the end of a 20-mile race because I have put the training and time in. I cannot ride my mountain bike down a cliff like those dudes on YouTube because I don't have the prerequisite burned-in skills. To summarize, flow states aren't magic. They are a real physiological manifestation that any of us are capable of. Effective flow states still require proficiency at your sport, craft, or art as the ante, but you can cultivate flow and use it. So flow on, my friends. And now for today's featured interview. You wrote this article about the quote-unquote, air quotes, marathon monks. Yeah. Who Mm -hmm. aren't really marathon monks. They're actually... (laughs) This uh, this whole thing is a is a sort of a uh, a yellow press news myth perpetrated yep. by one guy who wrote a book. Yep. Uh, but you went out and ran the the pilgrimage route anyhow, which is right. what you are wont to do. That sounds right. sounds very pretty, but it's interesting in Japan because it's so densely populated that you it's sort of like you get this forest setting and then you'll pop out into civilization. You know. Right. It's, it's very hard to be actually. 100% remote in Japan. Actually, though, people get lost all the time and have to be rescued, um, you know, on, and people die out in the mountains all the time. On Mount 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 High, specifically? He, it's actually pronounced Hie. Hie. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, I don't think on Mount Hie, but um, certainly, see, the thing about Japan is no one builds in the mountains. Right. Because those are the sacred places. So traditionally, all of the activity has gone and the building has gone on in the valleys. So you've got lots of vast, you know, areas that, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's quite surprising because you always think of Japan as just being so crowded. And it is. But if people would move up into the mountains, it wouldn't be nearly as crowded. Right. But somehow they managed to hold these areas sacred. Yeah, and of course, not all of them, I suppose, are, are like Mount Hiei is an exception that it's extremely sacred. It's actually one of the three top sacred places in Japan. But a lot of other places, you know, certainly people, you know, even have private land that could be had up there. But um, as a matter of fact, one of the guys um, who started up a business in education, actually, in this area, that was his strategy, is he bought land up on the mountains and started schools because it was very cheap. Hmm. And he was very successful. Huh. Mm-hmm. So leave it to a uh, developer. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the monks. Okay. The monks are Tendai, Buddhist monks, and they live on Mount Hiei. And uh, Tendai is a rather large um, contingent of Buddhism in Japan, but the monks on Mount Hiei are definitely special. 
And they take part, actually, I shouldn't say they, because um, very few monks actually take part in this ritual. And since they started taking down records in 1585, which is 429 years ago, only um, just over 50 monks have completed this ritual. It's a 1,000-day challenge called Sennichi Kaihogyo. What the monks do is they do a circuit, and there are two different circuits. One, thir- one is 30 kilometers, which is the one that I did, I ran, and then there's the 40-kilometer circuit, and that one isn't really going anymore. What they do is it's over a seven-year period of a 1,000 days. The first, second, and third years, they walk this route, um, let's say 30K, for 100 days in a row each year. And then in the fourth year, they do two stints of 100 days. And then in the fifth year, they do the same two stints of 100 days. But the sixth year, they go to one stint of 100 days, but the uh, kilometrage is increased to 60 kilometers a day. Hmm. And then on the seventh year, they do 100 days of 84 kilometers a day. And then they have one last 100 days in the seventh year, which takes them back to the 30 kilometers a day. Someplace in mm-hmm. there they do a nine-day fast with no food and water that almost kills them, or does that's kill right. them. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's after 700 days. Yeah. Right. Then you go out mm-hmm. and, and walk a little bit more after that. That's right. Yeah, it takes their body about a week just to be able to eat regular food again after the fast. And uh, But the purpose of all of this is to venerate uh, the god called uh, Fudomyo. He's at the center of worship for the Tendai sect. And when they do this pilgrimage route, they're chanting his mantra the whole time and praying to Fudomyo. Right. And, you know, the way we talk about it, it's like there's a troop of a hundred of these guys gearing up every night and going out there. But really, it's, you yeah. know, it's, it's one or two a century who take this on. Well, um, I would say there would be maybe four this century. But yeah, you're right. It's not there aren't very many and there would certainly not be more than one at a time doing it. Um I mean there might be, you know, an overlapping of something, you know, in one year or something. But yeah. no, it's you have to get specific permission to do it. And then if you do complete it, then you're called a living Buddha. They do have to take an oath to like if they should decide to quit the pilgrimage at any point during the seven years, then they are supposed to also take their own life. Hmm. Now, well, in these days, it's more DNF symbolic, right there. But, but yeah, <laughs> they certainly, I'm sure it would, you know, have been true <clears> in the <throat> old days. So yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, quite a few people have, you know, tried it more recently and haven't, you know, gotten through it, but I'm sh- quite sure they didn't kill themselves. The whole myth around this was this one guy wrote a book called the Marathon Monks of, of Mount Pia. Right. Yeah, let's uh, start with where the term did come from. It was first used to describe the, the monks in a book by John Stevens called The Marathon Monks of Mount Hie. While in some ways I agree with the moniker Marathon Monks because they cover marathon distances, certainly. And, and I think that's good, too, because it I mean, a lot of people know the effort that one has to go through to cover 
a marathon. So in some ways, it's a good way, you know, to judge distance. But I also think that it's um, really not true either to say that they run it. And just even using the word marathon, of course, people just think of runners automatically. Yeah. And they're not running. And I do understand that, you know, some people's idea of running could be different. But I think also that, you know, there's a difference between running and not running. <laughs> yeah. So, whether so they're, you walk, so they're, walk they're kind of walking with purpose. Yeah, Absolutely. I think it's the type of thing where, okay, you walk something, but like anyone who's walked one route consistently, for example, you might walk to the train station or the store or school, you know that pace makes a big difference. So this is why we quicken our pace when we're like late to catch a train, right? We only run when we risk missing the train. Oh my God, I'm going to miss the train. And that's when you run, but not until that point. So I think that looking at movement more as, as a gauge of perceived necessity is probably a better way to look at things. You know, we're just, we're, yeah, we're just lucky he didn't say the jogging monks. <laughs> well, that's actually was one of his points. Is he, he said that the long distance walkers of Mount Hie doesn't sound as good. It doesn't sound as good, but you know, you can't just go ahead and make claims that are false either. And this is what journalism is all about, isn't it? You know, it's, yeah telling the truth and getting things right. And if you even wanted to use Marathon Monks and Mount Hie, that's fine too, but there should be some kind of qualification somewhere in the book that says, look, you know, this is what the monks do. And, you know, like he said, I had to run to keep up with them. Mm. And and so obviously he, the author himself, isn't a runner, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know that my husband, when he walks fast, he's going almost as fast as my, you know, long, slow distance jog. Right. But sure. we know who's working harder, right? Yeah. So it's just a bit of a misnomer. And I think it's a shame to mislead people intentionally when that didn't have to be the case. Right. And the monks don't care what they say about them because they're Buddhist monks. They could care less, right? Well, so. no, actually, they... They're like on YouTube, they've got quite a bit of information on these monks now, and there have been lots of documentaries in Japanese. And they do say, look, the point isn't the walking. They said it's the praying. We do this because we are praying at over 250 sites on the mountain, and we just happen to be getting there by walking there. So they're right. a little bit disappointed right. that people are focusing so much on the physical aspects when it's the spiritual aspect that is the main thing for them. They're not like out there trying to run or trying to walk faster. They're just trying to get through their route in the most efficient way as possible. But in these documentaries, do they talk at all about the connection between the physical activity and how it supports the, the meditation? No, and I think even the word um, meditation is probably a different, has a different connotation in the West and the East as well. So I think we need to be careful when we use these terms because they do mean different things depending. So these folks are uh, Buddhists, mm -hmm. but it's a Japanese type of Buddhism, which is there's a lot of gods involved. It's almost uh, sort of Hinduish. Well, a lot of it does come from Hindu roots as well. A lot of Buddhism is taken from lots of different uh, religions, mainly Buddhism. Yep. I mean, Hinduism. Yes. So you're so, right there. Yeah, so, you know, having been a, uh, a runner for a long time, it's it's funny, I'm reading a book right now about running and uh by a uh by a Buddhist monk. 
mm-hmm. right? But he's Tibetan. Mm-hmm. And he, he says uh, running, a lot of people say running is meditation, but he, he stridently says running is not meditation. Yes, that's right. Running I mean, helps you. Running helps you focus your breathing mm-hmm. and makes you physically able, you know, maybe assists in meditation, but running is not meditation, is what he says. And I would have to agree with that. And, I mean, I can understand why it is, why, you know, there's even a cliche, you know, running meditation um, now. But I think this is meditation as, you know, through the uh, Western eyes or maybe even the American eyes. No, it's certainly not um, the same idea as that they have in Japan and, you know, perhaps even Tibet. But what these guys are doing, they're praying, which is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So we got it now. These guys are walking and praying. Right. And there is, they also do have something like a, a walking uh, meditation called uh, Jogyo Zanmai. Um, but that's different again. It's not you know, quite I, I the same was, either. I was hoping... I was hoping you wouldn't make me try to pronounce that. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> you can just say walking. So, so they walk and chant is what you're saying. Yeah, but actually they're not like circumambulating, you know, like a mountain or something. They're, it's actually a very small area where they just walk around an image of um, Amida, which is a god, and chanting. So it's very controlled. And this is the the problem with, I think... Uh, when we were talking about meditation and running and the difference is that in real meditation, I mean, one of the reasons you're sitting there is because you're emptying your mind completely. Right. Right. And if you were to do that while you were running, then you're probably, I mean, you need to be aware when you're running to a, a certain point, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you're going to trip on a route or you're going to get hit by a car or, you know, you have to let these things um, come in, especially audio things. Yeah. So it's, while there are definitely similarities between the two, and um, and I I really liked uh, Sakyong Mifam's book Running with the Mind of Meditation, because yeah, that's, he, the, that's that's the one I'm reading. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, interesting. Yeah. So he because he talks about applying one to the other, and right. um, not confusing the two, but using the principles of one with the other, and um, that was a kind of another problem I had with the Marathon Monks book is that. The author makes a claim that they are actually better than Olympic athletes. Yeah. Or suggests that they, you know, could be better. And I thought, whoa, that's really, that's a big statement. Yeah, yeah, that's silly. Because I think that's confusing ascetics and Olympic dreams and spiritual devotion with physical effort, self-sacrifice with competitive drive. I mean, they're two different worlds. Right, right. They're, They're doing this to get closer to their spiritual goals. Right has nothing really to do with the, the physical. So you decided, okay, I'm a, a reporter, and uh, I'm going to go run this route. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it seemed like a bit of an adventure for you. Oh, as it, it As it always does. You know, in your previous book, you had this wonderful adventure trying to run the Shikoku Pilgrimage, which was, what, 800 miles, if I remember correctly? Yeah, 900 miles. Yeah, yep. you got into mm-hmm. all kinds of adventures in doing that. Oh, and yeah. the Japanese... Who, who meet you out there must think you're nuts, but <laughs> probably. But I do run pilgrimages. It's become quite a hobby of mine. The reason I wanted to run the the pilgrimage on Mount Hie that these monks do was really more from a perspective of just running pilgrimages, more than to like prove anything. Because 
I understand that, you know, you can't really um, say that, oh, well, I ran this pilgrimage in this amount of time. Why does it take those monks so long or short or have, you know, I, I wasn't out there to compare anything. It's interesting because the reason I found out that this whole thing was a myth was because when I wrote my book, Running the Shikoku Pilgrimage, I actually consulted the author of the Marathon Monks book. And I said, look, I've, you know, I'd come across this research on the Marathon Monks that they run this pilgrimage because I was trying to find out if anyone else was out there running pilgrimages. And he, yeah. and so I sent him the part of my manuscript that, you know, had covered the marathon monks. So I said, I was just wondering if you would mind checking this for me. And he got back. He said, Oh yeah. I mean, he's very nice and got back. So oh, yeah, it's all correct. Well, <laughs> it then, wasn't. well in his mind it's correct and then I got an offer um, from a Buddhist magazine a very well known magazine actually to write an article on running pilgrimages and they said oh and we've you know found this you know we've dug up some other information about you know these monks on Mount Hiei who do this (laughs) so I said okay and so I went to Mount Hiei and I started doing my research and that's when I uncovered that you know this is actually all you know, just kind of a myth that's gotten blown way out of proportion. I mean, you have to remember that this Marathon Monks book was first published in 1988, and a lot of runners know about it, especially long-distance runners. Well, I mean, it's, it's up a there. Great, yeah, it's a great story, right? Yeah, yeah. That, and I mean, that somehow long-distance running allows you to transcend, right? Right, and they've been up there putting the same category as the Tara Umara and the the Lungkomba runners in Tibet, and yeah. you know, so yeah, so I was I started uh, getting an idea. I mean, even after reading the the Marathon Monks book, though, if you're a runner, you, there are things that make you go, hmm, really, hmm, that doesn't <laughs> seem right. So <laughs> I kind of had some suspicions, but this guy wrote the book, right? I don't know anything about the Tendai monks, so um, I just you know, presumed it was true. So, and then when I found out that it wasn't and that all the monks I was talking to were like, no, no, you know, we walk it and this and that. That's when I started realizing that I was on to something here. You know, no one had really trumped this myth before. And so I had known about it for quite a while and um, had an opportunity to write about it again. But what happened with the Buddhist magazine is that, you know, I got back to them and I said, look, I've been doing my research and I've been to Mount Hiei a couple times and, you know, the monks don't actually run it. And as a result, I lost, you know, the article. So I had put in quite a bit of research. They didn't really want to have an article about how it wasn't true either. (laughs) And so I had done all this research and I, you know, lost out monetarily anyway. But this is the problem with these myths, you know, if we continue to support them and if they do get blown out of proportion, like this one has, I mean, if you look on YouTube and any of the English documentaries on the monks, or two anyway, talk about them running it. And, of course, who is the consultant? The guy who wrote this book. So, you know, it just has so many further ramifications that I think people don't realize. And I think that's the problem more than anything. How was the route? Okay, well, I thought it was absolutely great. You managed to get yourself lost again. Oh, yeah, and that's part of pilgrimaging is getting lost. It's just, it's one of those things that happens because, you know, not all the, the the roots are made for people, well, first of all, they're very ancient, and I have, for this route, three quarters of it was marked marvelously. It was very well signposted. 
But the vague part of the route wasn't on any map or anything. And, of course, it had no signs at all. And I did get lost, yeah, but that's all part of it. It was really nice. I enjoy running pilgrimages because it combines the physical with the metaphysical. And I just get a lot of joy out of that and running in these sacred places and the feeling and it's it's fresh and the trails were so well maintained. And yeah, it was really nice. And of course, you can combine it with sightseeing as well. Um, yeah, I just, from looking at your pictures, I just get the feeling of ancientness mm-hmm. from a lot of this, this trail that you're on. You know, oh, that every amazing. once in a while you run by something that's obviously, you know, 500 years old. Right. Oh, easily. Yeah. 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 The oldest building is was built in 800 and something. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's like you said, it's uh, it's it's physical and metaphysical. Mm hmm. I was running last week. I was in uh, New Jersey. Right. You guys, you say gross New Jersey. So I got up in the morning, go running and I uh, I found a park with this nice shaded forest trail you know with like the bark mulch groom mm. like a mile and a half long just sort of serendipity oh, nice. and it's you know there's deer and heron and bunnies it was like a disney video so <laughs> it, i really like it when things just happen like that right yeah it's beautiful isn't it it looked like some of this had like um paving on it as well some stone and and that sort of thing yeah, you'll get to places um, like there are three precincts that the pilgrimage route goes through, and those are your tourist areas in which people drive to them or come on a bus, and so those tend to be paved in that area. It's usually a collection of temples, and then once you're out of that collection of temples, then it goes back to you know the natural trail, and then they have gone through and they've put in steps, stone steps, and such as you can see. I mean, it's just it's perfect for running. Because yeah. there's not too much pavement, and it's it's easy on the feet. I know that around here in the mountains where I live, like just out my back door, we also have a very small pilgrimage that I run, you know, all the time. That's what I run when I, you know, go out and run. And But if it's not maintained, it's very difficult to run, isn't it? I mean, the leaves pile up, and, you know, branches fall, and it it takes quite a bit of effort just to maintain it, let alone to, you know to continue to be able to run it. Sure, you get one bad windstorm and you spend most of your time trying to get around the deadfall. Yeah, so there, you know, they have people who clean it and keep it clear. So yeah. it was just beautiful. Yeah, awesome. And you stop at the little shrines and uh, say your prayers and do a little sitting? Um, Not really, um, because the, the, I mean, the route is supposedly 30 kilometers long, but it I think it was probably only 25, or the one I did. <laughs> I did get lost for a while, <laughs> an hour about. Um, it didn't seem like 30 Ks, and um, there really wasn't a need to stop and rest. Um, plus, I mean, when you're stopping to you know, see some of the temples and stuff, you're stopping a lot anyway. So, yeah, yeah it's, it was quite nice, really, a really good, uh, just comfortable pace. And I had perfect weather. It was actually supposed to rain, according to the forecast in the morning, but it didn't rain at all, and it was really nice. Yeah, it's it's interesting, um, the topography out there. It sounds fascinating. It looks beautiful. It really does. But that's another another one of those mythologies that I see, you know, just reading reading your description of the routes when they go 30K, 60K, 80K. I go, 
you know, these are mountain trails. No one has any idea how long these are. That's just a number somebody pulled out of thin air, right? Well, yeah. They certainly didn't have <laughs> GPSs back then, did they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. We found that with a lot, you know, I live in New England, so a lot of the trail races, originally the trail races, when we set them up 20 years ago, we didn't have GPS, right? So mm-hmm. the way we measure them is just go run them by your watch. Okay. And so a lot of the trail races around here had to be adjusted up or down by a mile um, when they finally get GPS in the picture. Oh, that's great. Isn't that yeah. beautiful? <laughs> so, yeah. It is a very right. mountainous course, though, but no more so than a regular, you know, trail running, that, presuming that, you know, you run in the, the hills or something. Yeah. But I, there weren't, like, really super steep parts. Yeah, and um, it sounds like the surface was good, so you didn't get the mud or... It makes yeah. such a big difference, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Especially if you're trying to run in grass sandals. Yeah. <laughs> Which I wasn't doing. I had shoes <laughs> on. But even then, I still ended up getting a bruised toe. <laughs> yeah, you lost the toenail. Good. Ah, I lose them all the time if I go on a long run, yeah. A really yeah, long what run. What toenails anyway. for, anyhow? Who That's right. It? Gosh. Hmm. <laughs> This breaking news here of you uh, debunking the Marathon Monks myth. Maybe this will start to cascade, and I'll see you in you know, runner's world in a couple of months. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's interesting because I haven't had a place to you know, do any myth-busting um, because it's really the runners who had re- you know, kind of made this occult book in the 80s because it was published in 1988. And so in the early 90s, and it really was a, a cult book. And it, if you look on the Internet, you'll find forums and stuff and people like, how can I get this book and this and that? And so it, it made a, you know, an impression on runners anyway at the time. Well, that's great. Hey, so it was uh, fascinating talking to you. Well, it's great to talk to you again, Chris. Thanks for asking me to come on. It's been a pleasure. All right. you have any links for us for people to uh, find your, your Absolutely. stuff? Absolutely. The Marathon Monks uh, article is in two uh, different parts, so I'll give you both those links. The news service is Rocket News 24. So if you were to put in Rocket News 24, you'd come up with their news feed and then uh, do a search for the Marathon Monks. But I'll also, of course, give you the links and all any other information. Yeah. So do you publish 100% in English or do they translate these? No, um, I write in English, and the and Rocket News does have a Japanese site as well. Okay. They have two right. sites, English and Japanese, and they do not just articles on Japan, but all of Asia. They have some stuff on Taiwan and China, and um, yeah, so and Korea, right. South Korea, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. You have a great time running. I will. I love running. <laughs> See ya. All right. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. An entry-level speed and strength workout to give you a taste or get you started. As you grow into your running passion, at some point you'll ask the question, how do I get faster? And when you ask this question, some experienced veteran like me will respond, speed work. 
and you will have no idea what we're talking about. If pressed, I'll gladly start regaling you with some of my favorite speed workouts. I'll tell you about 200s and 400s and 800s and maybe even 1600s. I'll talk about strength and form and cadence. I might even get into ladder workouts and other run-to-exhaustion routines that the hardcore among us like to brag about like masochistic smiling coaches. If you're still paying attention... You might go out to the local track and try to run one of these speed workouts, and you'll soon realize that this is a foreign experience for your body. You might persevere and pull something. (laughs) We're doing you a disservice. The part we never deign to inform you about is how to prepare your body and your mind for these speed workouts. And this occurred to me recently as I try to climb back into race fitness after a long absence from any quality speed or tempo work. As part of this journey, my coach gave me some brilliant beginner speed workouts, and that's what I'm going to share with you. It's unfair for us to think that you can just jump into a full-blown tempo or speed workout. The mechanics of speed are different from your normal form, and you need to learn them. The stresses of speed work and tempo on your legs are different, and you need to build into them. It's easier for me because I have 35 years of racing to fall back on, and I know what to expect. So how does a runner, new to speed work, ease into it? Well, I'll step you through the workout. Some of this is from the devious mind of my coach, Jeff, at PRS Fit, and some of it is from my own devious mind and experience. So first, you need to find a flattish piece of road where you can do your workout. You can go to the track if you want, but it's not mandatory. I did this workout in my neighborhood, and on a scale of 1 to 10, it's about a 3 to a 4 in terms of difficulty. First thing you do is warm up. In the warm-up phase of this workout, what you need to do is just go run no less than 10 minutes at an easy pace with good form. Piece of cake, right? Just amble around, get your muscles firing, get your blood flowing. Step two, you got to stretch. When you come out of your warm-up, I want you to stop and stretch. Your muscles should be warm and relaxed and open to a little stretching. Speed work stresses the connective tissue and you want to take a few minutes to make sure it's stretched. Like I said, I did this in my neighborhood, so I was able to leave a water bottle and take a drink when I stopped to stretch. You may have additional trouble spots that you need to stretch, but these are my root. This is my routine. These are my stretches. You do the the lean against the wall hamstring stretch, the anterior Achilles stretch. You can Google that one if you don't know what it is. Hurdler stretch for the hamstrings, quadriceps stretch, hip flexors, inductors, abductors. You know the butterfly stretch, and I do about a minute on each of these and then self-massage while I'm doing it. Just try to loosen everything up. Then you do strength and form exercises. So this is running, but it's running with purpose for uh, strength and form. These are drills, track drills. Speed work uses different form and muscles, and you need to work on those. So next is a series of exercises to build strength and form. You can do these in any order, but focus on form, not on effort, and try not to pull anything or hurt yourself. And in no particular order, butt kicks, skipping, bounding, sideways running left, sideways running right, backwards running. And again, if you don't know what these are, look them up on YouTube. Do Each exercise for a count of 50 steps or reps, and then run 50 steps easy between each exercise. And it sounds like a lot, but it'll take you less than a kilometer to do all these. Now you're ready for your introductory speed session. And you will do 10, or whatever feels comfortable, of these sets. 
you're going to run at 5K pace. So run fast for 20 seconds and then recover for 60 seconds. And do this continuously for 10 intervals. And if you do the math, this is only an 11-minute workout. It's a piece of cake. And go as fast as you want, as slow as you want, because you can't hurt yourself in 20 seconds. This workout lends itself very nicely to being programmed into your Garmin or your other device, so you don't have to waste time looking at your watch. You can accelerate into the 20 seconds of speed and strength and form, and before you know it, the watch will beep, and you can recover for a full minute. Focus on strength and form. Play with your stride and form during the 20-second intervals to get comfortable with the mechanics of speed. Then when you come out of that, you go back to your form and strength drills, part two. Butt kicks, skipping, bounding, sideways, backwards. Then when you come out of that, you do your stretching again. Hamstring, quadriceps, hip flexor, imductor, abductor. And then you cool down with a final 10-minute easy cruise with good form. So doing this workout once or twice a week for two weeks or three weeks will prepare you for entering into the fun world of speed and tempo work. And you'll have a good taste of the form and the strength required to run those 1600s and ladders and step-up runs without hurting yourself and uh, getting discouraged. So there you go. I can sleep well now that I have closed a loop and removed a barrier, preventing thousands of new runners from going down to the local track and testing themselves against the great darkness that is speed work. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Well, it's been a busy couple of weeks for me. <laughs> I've always got a lot going on, but with ramping up my training and work travel, I'm feeling a bit old and used up there. That's why this isn't getting out to you until Saturday. I'll tell you a couple of stories from the last last few weeks. I, you know, with work travel, I'm usually starting my day by meeting somebody at 7 a.m. or 7.30, you know, for breakfast. And this means my miracle morning mostly consists on these days of rolling into my shoes at 5 a.m. and getting out the hotel door before I have a chance to come to full consciousness and realize how little sense that makes. And it kind of sucks to get up early and work out on jet-lagged legs, little sleep, and no nutrition. But if you don't do it in the morning, you won't get it done. And it gives you one thing that even if the rest of your day goes poorly, you got that one thing done. I was working last week in New Jersey. And this is the nice part of New Jersey in Basking Ridge, not in Newark or one of the nasty places of New Jersey. And I got up and into my shoes for an hour or 20 run. And I just rolled out and headed down the road. And after a mile or so, I, I ran by the entrance to a park and the sign said Pleasant Valley. So I went into the park, figuring it would be just one of those postage stamp sized urban parks, but at least I'd get a quarter mile respite from the highway. And as I made my way through the parking area, it had tennis courts and a pond. And I came upon the one thing that brightens every road warrior runner's heart and soul, a functioning, unlocked park toilet. Yes. And after this, I was I was able to lighten the load, so to speak, and continue exploring this lovely little park. 
And as I continued a clockwise loop of the Pleasant Valley, I noticed a trail entrance. And of course, I turned into it. That's a life lesson for you. Always take the trail. What's the worst can happen? You have to turn around and come back. The trail turned out to be a well-groomed, eight-foot-wide, bark-mulch beauty of a trail. And I continued to follow it up the side of the valley. And the day was going to be a warm day. It was going to be in the 90s uh, that day and humid. But at 5 in the morning, the valley was indeed pleasant with a slight mist in the air and the sun not yet over the horizon. And the broad mulch trail was overarched by a cathedral of trees, more like a dark green misty tunnel than a trail. And as I continued to wend my way up the trail, I saw a silent figure standing in the middle of the trail ahead, and some sort of four-legged friend that I could just make out standing in the middle of the trail facing my approach. And as I, as I got closer, it resolved into a fawn, uh, a little Bambi, with its ears twitching, curiously watching this old bear struggle up the trail. And I got within, I don't know, 20, 25 feet and before Bambi scampered into the underbrush, but Bambi wasn't that afraid of me. And the trail came out on some playing fields at the top of this uh, the side of the value, and I saw a worn track in the grass around them, so I followed it, and I entered another trail on the other side, and it turned out to be about a mile and a half of groomed mulch trail that circled the whole park. And so I just ran that loop twice, and I saw all sorts of nice stuff. I saw cardinals and flushed a great blue heron from the pond and mildly alarmed several rabbits for good measure. It was beautiful. And so with that, I ran a couple loops in there and ran back to the hotel to finish up my my hour and 20 minutes or eight-ish miles. But I'd managed to trade three miles of highway for a respite in the middle of my run in the Pleasant Valley. And why? Because I was curious. And I took the path and I took the unknown trail. So this past week, Coach threw some, another story, this past week, just finishing up, Coach threw some real training at me. And I had a 7 by 800 set of intervals at race pace to do on Thursday morning. And I was staying in Buckhead in Atlanta. And if any of you know Buckhead, you know there is not a flat piece of ground to be found anywhere to do tempo workouts on. After rolling into my shoes at 5 a.m. and getting out the door... I went in search of somewhere to get some 800-meter repeats in, and I first made my way down to the local Little League fields where I, I know where those are next to the office. It's a, I think it's called Frankie Allen Park. But when I got there, these are sort of carved into the side of the hill and not really big and not really conducive for intervals. But then I had a brainstorm, and I ran back over to the Lenox Mall and climbed to the roof of the parking garage. <laughs> and I did my final four repeats on the roof of the garage. And it turned out to be about a sixth of a mile loop or so. So it was pretty good. Nice and flat, right? Nobody up there at five in the morning. And I did manage to consolidate my websites all onto one hosting provider over the last two, three weeks. And you may notice some things are broken or missing from Run Run Live, but I haven't worked, I haven't worked through it. I just got it moved. Um, I'll work through it as I have time. I am blessed with lots of ambition, but seldom the time or focus to actually do anything about it. Uh, it was a very interesting interview with Amy we had today. The Marathon Monks, it turns out, are a myth. 
But they're such a great myth, we want to believe it. We want to believe it because it supports our worldview as runners. These guys are proof positive that running is a vehicle to transcend, to higher, higher levels of existence. Yeah, but they aren't. It's all a myth. Since it's such a good myth, we want it to be true, and, and we'll actually resist the facts when they come to light. We'll deny it. And we believe what we want to believe, especially if it supports our worldview. That's how religions get started. That's how people start codifying myth into dogma, and soon we're shooting RPGs at each other. But not me, man. It's summertime, and the living is easy. The catfish are jumping, and the tomatoes are high. Cheers. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao.